We're reading uh, through the book of Ephesians this quarter. I just love that song, and I, love, I think it's a great exercise to contemplate your own mortality. Um, in the book of Ephesians, along similar lines, what's happening in chapter 3 is this. Paul, for the first two chapters, has been expounding in a beautiful way all the blessings of Jesus. You're dead in your transgressions. You've been made alive by Christ. You are far from the promises of God, and He's brought you near. Um, and, he, and He expounds all these beautiful things in Christ. And chapter 3 is this, parent, this parenthetical statement in the chapter where He steps out for a moment, and He just says, And I want you to know how much love I have for you and my prayer for you. And then chapter 4 uh, is when He starts kind of then giving us exhortation of like, all those things being true in Christ, here's what new life looks like. And he actually gives us a lot of commandments of how to live. But this is this pause in the middle of the letter where Paul's like, here's all you have in Jesus. Here are the beautiful things he's done. Here's our condition before him. Here's this profound love for you. And Paul just steps back and he just says, and I want you to know my love for you and why I found the gospel um, so powerful. And he's writing this letter. You'll notice this. He references a couple times in these verses from prison. And he is actually imprisoned because of his ministry to the Ephesians. I'll explain that in a moment. And what he is doing is he's talking about how it's totally worth it. That here's somebody whose life is kind of in the balance at this moment. And, um, and he is contemplating his death. And he has such a profound love for what he's called to and who, what he has in Jesus and his love for the church. That he's like, I'm in prison for y'all and it's totally worth it. It's totally worth it. So here is Paul's heart um, for the church. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Again, this is not a metaphor of being prisoner. He's actually writing from jail. Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What is this mystery? This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the same body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might, be made, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. This is your glory. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your servant, Paul. And I pray that as we see his passion and his love and the cost um, of his ministry to his own self, that we would see something beautiful that we are drawn towards, dear God. I pray that we would be freed from all the small loves that we have and be freed to live a life um, with a deep heart uh, and a profound love, dear God, that makes us people who don't care. Free us, dear God. Be with us, Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, Alex Main will be happy to know that the Holy Spirit is alive and well 
And like five minutes before I walked in here, the Holy Spirit was like, you know what? Don't use the twilight opening. And I think the Holy Spirit is right, and I know Alex is happy I'm not using twilight as an opening. Um, but I did watch it this weekend, and it affected me, and I'll talk about that with you individually afterwards if you want to. It's really interesting. <laughs> but this is really what we need to talk about, not that. Is this. Last week I had a conversation with a bunch of seniors, and, um, and none, of, none of whom are in here. And we asked this question together and talked about it. And I, I walked in the room and asked this question. I said, we read the story of a woman, uh, it's Luke 7, who comes and washes Jesus' feet. This woman is a prostitute. Jesus is in a dinner meeting with all the religious uh, leaders of this town that he's in. And she comes and washes his feet at the table and weeps at his feet at the table. And everybody's just taken aback and doesn't know how to process this scene. And I asked the guys if we read this, I said, do you wish you had something that you loved so much that you didn't care what other people thought about? That you had something that was so singular and so beautiful and at the center of who you are with which you had such a profound love that actually the person you became was somebody who didn't care about all the other things people care about all the time. And in this, the, the seniors I was talking to, some of them were Christians, some of them were not Christians, and to a T, they said, I want something like that. That would be amazing. To, have, to be connected to something, to believe in something, to have something so lovely. Senior guys, senior frat guys nonetheless, right? All said, yeah, I would love to have something like that. I wish that my life was not all these little tiny loves I'm managing. I wish there was something that grabbed me so deeply that I became somebody free. Because that's who this woman is. She's completely free. The people that are most intimidating and I think mystifying to me and maybe to you are the people that have something like that. They're so passionate that they actually don't care what you think. Because what our life is, if we don't have that, is this collection of all these little passions that people tell us we should have and we should care about a lot. And we're managing the decision between all these little passions. And the way you manage all these decisions is you, you have things in front of you all the way from what you're going to eat this morning to like who you're going to marry and what job you're going to take. As you manage all those decisions with your but whatabouts, right? So this is a real scene that happened to me this morning internally. I woke up this morning and I had two options, bowl of cereal and whole milk or protein shake. And I had to manage that decision with my but whatabouts, right? Cereal, whole milk, it's going to fill me up. I'm going to feel really good. My brain's going to work well. But also it's going to, milk has, especially whole milk, has like inflammatories in it. So it's going to make my joints, they're going to recover a little bit more slowly. And it's going to make CrossFit a little bit harder. I'm not going to get in the kind of fitness shape I want to get into. I'm managing this decision, right? Protein shake. It's going to make me starving at like 10.15. Like three hours, two hours later, I'm going to be like, I ate nothing this morning. It was just like a milkshake of cardboard. But I know it's going to serve all like my CrossFit personal goals that I have that are idolatry and problems. And that's another conversation. <laughs> but literally, I'm wondering, but what about, you know? Okay, I eat the protein shake, but what about getting hungry earlier? Okay, I drink the milk, but what about all my fitness goals? And I have to manage that. I went with the cereal and the milk. I know you were wondering. I couldn't finish, couldn't get, move on from there. But that's what life is. You're interviewing for a job as a senior. And you're, you're, you're kind of laying out the pros and cons of each job. And you're asking yourself, well, if I take this, but what about this? This is what you will, this weekend, you're going to make social choices. And as you make those social choices, you're going to do it by wondering, if I choose this, but what about this? You're going to consider all that you lose. People who have a singular love that consumes them never ask that question. 
And we're actually frustrated by it because we see that and we say, but what about, but what about, but what about? You look at Paul, but Paul, if you do church, to, if you do ministry to the Ephesians, you're going to jail. Do you understand what that means? It's a loss of freedom. It's a loss of reputation. It wrecks your life. It wrecks your family. But what about all of those things? And Paul's like, you don't get it. I have such a singular passion. Singular passionate people don't ask, but what about? Doesn't that sound good? Don't you wish you had something that freed you from those questions? C.S. Lewis says this, The problem with our heart is not that we have too many desires that are too big. He's actually, he says this, Actually, the problem is that our desires are too small. We're pursuing all these small things, and we're managing our loyalty and our allegiance to all these miniature dreams. And when you consider Christianity, and maybe even when you consider Christianity, and you consider all the different ways we're called to follow Jesus, it's full of but whatabouts. You know? Whoa, okay. I want to follow Jesus, but I want to follow him in this compromised way because it's going to affect my ambition. It's going to affect my sexual identity. It's going to affect my playtime. It's going to affect my greed. So you have this, but what about? It's like, all right, I want to follow Jesus, but what about being singularly devoted to my startup and using every hour of every day to make it work? Yeah, you're going to cost you something if you follow Jesus. But if you understand Jesus, you know what? You won't care and you won't be threatened by the, but what about? Because that's Paul in prison. So the question really is this. Are you tired? And I hope that you are. And you can go on for a long time not dealing with this weariness. Are you tired of having life composed of the accumulation of a bunch of small-time passions that you're not even very passionate about? You just assumed them because people told you these are the goals that you should have. And you ran with them, but you never stopped and wondered, are these worthy of my life? And yet the very thing that you're doing is giving your life to them. Paul is in prison. He's in prison, we know, because in Acts 21, he was so excited about the Ephesians meeting Jesus that he took Ephesian Gentiles into the Jewish temple, which is at, it was against the law at the time. That's why he's arrested, and he didn't care because he's like, these people meeting Jesus is amazing. I don't care what it costs me. You don't understand. I don't sweat the but whatabouts. Yeah, I'm in prison, and it was totally worth it. He didn't care because he found Jesus. And what I want to talk about tonight is that he found something in Jesus that made him not care. And what he found is this, three things. He found good news that provides hope to any kind of person. And it, it, one of the cool things about Stanford is y'all want to save the world. One of the not cool things about Stanford is how small your dreams of what that should look like turn out to be. Because Paul discovers in Jesus something that provides hope to anyone. Because most of the hopes that we offer the world, if not all of them, are actually not for anyone, but for certain people that happen to come across certain opportunities. Right? If you're in a certain socioeconomic class, then you can have certain hopes. If you have certain educational possibilities, if you have certain natural abilities, then there are certain hopes you can have. All the hopes are actually dependent on time and place and ability and genes and socioeconomics. Paul discovers something in Jesus that is for anyone. Anyone. Not only that, it's for anyone, and it can bring any kind of people together. Right? How much has all the other things that we hope to bring people together, human progress, democracy, technology, capitalism, education, how much have those things done to unify the world? Little to nothing. Paul finds a hope that can reach anyone, a hope that can unify any groups of people. 
and hope that can transform anyone. So those are our three points. What does Paul fired up about? What does he see in Jesus that, that creates the singular love and passion that frees him? It's something that gives hope to anybody. It's something that can unite anybody. It's something that can transform anybody. He's fired up. This is point one. Why? Because he's discovered in Jesus the mystery of the gospel. This is, uh, this is what he's kind of riffing on in the first six verses. You, you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. This mystery that was made known. The mystery of Christ. And he gets to it finally. He gives us the content. What is the mystery he keeps talking about? Verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The mystery is this, that the gospel is for anyone. Because when he says, even the Gentiles, even the people in Ephesus, he's saying something enormous. Because what Ephesus was at this point in time is the center of Diana worship. They worshiped the, the Greek goddess Diana. There was a temple that sat at the center of the city. Their entire economy was based on this temple. It was what brought people to town. And the temple was actually, uh, the economy of the town was built around building idols and um, food and agriculture providing for the ceremonies. And the reason we know this is actually because in Acts 19, when Paul comes and preaches to the Ephesians, these are people who had worshipped the princess Diana, or the goddess Diana, princess Diana. <laughs> that was weird. Um, for hundreds of years, um, and their economy was based on that. And when Paul preaches the gospel in Acts 19, and people start trusting in Jesus, this is what happens. Go read in Acts 19. The economy tanks. So not only are these people religiously opposed to Jesus, they're actually economically opposed to Jesus. They have economic incentives for not following Jesus. Because what happens is the whole economy is built around worshiping Diana and providing for the worshipers and structuring and selling worship items. And there's a riot in Acts 19 because the metal workers and the stonesmiths and the, and the craftsmen, their businesses are failing. And they actually riot. Because they no longer could base their economy on Diana worship. This is my point. Ephesus was the least likely people, uh, the least likely place, and the least likely people for the gospel to make an impact. Religiously opposed to the gospel, economically opposed to the gospel. City of two hundred to three hundred thousand people, and following Jesus was going to rip the heart of their economic engine out of the city. But Paul knew the mystery. The mystery that the gospel is the true story of the radical love of God, that you are dead in sin but made alive in Christ, that we are far from God and we were brought near, that we were once hopeless, but by the grace of God we have hope. And he knows that if you encounter it, even the least likely are both welcome and even the least likely will actually come to Jesus. So his implications. His implications for us, that we think about ourselves, and it has implications for the way we think about others has implication for us in this regard. A lot of us wonder, myself included, at times, can the, can the mystery include me? Maybe you have a life, maybe you have a past, maybe you have these things in you that you think, but these are too dark. They're too dark for the love of God. I have this bent in me, I have this corruption in me, I have this addiction. Maybe you considered yourself formally religious and Christian and you, and you walked away from Jesus in college and you're like... But I don't know if I can come back and His love can still be for somebody like me. 
Maybe you're somebody who looks really Christian on the outside, but you go home and you have a hidden life that you've hidden from everybody forever. And you think, I've played the Christian card for so long, but I don't know if Jesus can still love me because I know the deep, dark hypocrisy within me. And so we wonder, is God's love for me? Can it handle somebody like me? Paul's heart and his joy is on fire. And he's betting his life on it because he knows the answer is yes. And the way, this is what, the fifth week of the school year, is that right? took five weeks for me to get to a CrossFit illustration. The way, we got to stop treating God like CrossFit. I do CrossFit, and I do it at my gym, and people say all the time, I want to get in shape before I come and try CrossFit. And that's the way we think about God. I want to I come into this Christian thing, I want to come back to Jesus, but I've got to get my life ordered before I come back. No. Stop. Come this way. The way you are now. It's got to change the way we think about ourselves and it's got to change the way we think about others. Who is it that you think the gospel can't reach? Who is it that is beyond the good news of the forgiving and transforming love of God in Christ? How often do Christians, myself included, think in certain contexts, I can't bring Jesus to them. That's not, that's not for them. They wouldn't, they wouldn't be interested. It could never work in the life of these kinds of people, of these friends of mine. Okay, that's exactly who the Ephesians were. The least likely. They're the least likely candidates. First of all, you need to know this. The gospel has power. You don't have power. The gospel has power. This is Paul's words in Romans 1. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everybody who believes, whether Jew or Gentile or religious or irreligious, moral or immoral, conservative or liberal. The gospel has power, but secondly, know this. Everybody's hungry. I am, you are, and everybody you think is not a candidate and wouldn't be drawn to Christ is hungry. We all are hungry. There is a dryness in us. There is a hunger in us. And we are cramming that hunger with everything we can get our hands on. Ambition and money and Tesla cars and sex and college football and business and exercise and being busy. And we're trying to satiate that hunger because we need something that makes us feel okay. And we think, we, we look out at the world and we think, there are these people and they have such a profound allegiance to these other things. There's no way they could be drawn to Christ. They're beyond His reach. They're, they wouldn't be interested. Listen, when, when people give themselves over to these other things, that's not the sign of somebody who's dead. That's the sign of somebody starving. That's hunger. That's the sign of a heart reaching and searching and hungry. We all want food and we're all thirsty. And Paul is fired up because the only prerequisite of the gospel is thirst. It's hunger. And the love of God in Christ is the only thing that satisfies. This is why Paul is fired up. It's because there is hope for anybody in Jesus. That's worth going to jail for. There's also hope that God can use anybody. The good good news always has an outward... (laughs) Y'all started... Jason. All right. God can use anybody as well. The gospel is for anybody, and the gospel actually can use anybody. Good news always has an outward push to it. 
This is always true. When our little girls do something sweet for us, they can't contain themselves. They want to declare it. This is why surprise parties are so hard to maintain is because there's this thing in us that says, make the good news known. This is why it takes work to not share good news. Good news always has this outward going momentum to it, always. And Paul teaches us two things about the type of people that God uses in making the grace of God in Jesus known. And first, he teaches us about ourselves. Because maybe you can come to the idea, okay, grace can come even for someone like me. But then can God use someone like me? That's like a whole other step, right? Can He really use someone like me? He might love somebody like me, but look at Paul's language. In verse 2, he talks about that he has this grace. He's got this grace to give others. But in verses 7 and 8, he talks about the grace as both the content of what he has to offer others, but he also talks about the grace as the motivation to give it to others. That good things, the grace of God, they're actually truly enjoyed when you share them. The grace of the gospel is both the content and the motivation. And before you say, but not somebody like me, you got to remember who Paul was. We actually meet Paul in Scripture in Acts 8 for the first time. And this is how we meet him. The first time his historical character is written about in history, he is overseeing the execution of a Christian pastor. Stephen, in Acts 7. That's who Paul is. And the next verses say, he was ravaging the church, and this is who Paul was. This is the first historical record of him. Ravaging the church, ravaging the church going to house to house, um, and dragging off men and women Christians and taking them to prison. And now he's in prison for the gospel he used to persecute. And he's in prison joyfully for it. If God can use somebody that authorized and supervised the persecution, arrest, and murder of Christians... To grow his kingdom, I assure you, he can use you. Because it's not your adequacy and your togetherness that makes you a vessel of good news. It's actually the grace of God that makes you a vessel of good news. Christianity is not good people telling other people how to be good, it is broken people who found hope in Jesus. And so my illness and my sin. And my darkness is part of the story of God's grace. It is not baggage that I have to hide in order to pretend to the world that I'm good. The story is not, I have it together. The story is not, you have it together. The story is, God loves messes like us. Your mess is actually why God can use you. And the people He doesn't use, this is the only thing that can disqualify you from God using you. They're the people who are so terrified by their mess that they hide it and deny it and justify it and lie about it instead of hold it out before the world and say, even somebody like me. Dead, hopeless, far. God made alive, gave me life, brought me near, gave me hope. God used Paul and used you. But it's not just that he uses Paul... The other conversation about the kind of people God uses turns up in verses 9 and 10. He's talking about bringing the light for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. Verse 10, he's ministering so that 
through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be now uh, might now be made known. Paul's ministering to prepare the church for mission, not you, us. God's using not just you. He's telling us God's tool for mission is not you individually. It's the church. And when he says church, we're going to talk about this later in the quarter, but, uh, but I'll, I'm going to tell you this now and prove it later. When Paul says church, he means the place with elders and deacons and sacraments and meeting times. He does not mean your small group, and he does not mean RUF for Cardinal Life or Chi Alpha or InterVarsity. And he's saying here, I'm preaching actually to prepare the fact Prepare you for the fact that it's the church's responsibility, the community of God, all of us together to make known the manifold wisdom of God. And kind of like we said last week, that's an overwhelming thought because if you go to church and you hang out with those people, here are the kind of people you find, people really different from you. I even noticed this weekend, I don't mean this in an offensive way, people who smell different. And that's just weird. There's an adjustment when people smell differently, Right? People who don't know how to talk about college football. That's hard for me. That's a problem I have. They don't know how to talk about your startup idea. When you start talking about your CS classes, they glaze over. Those are the kind of people you're going to find at church. People who went to lower tier colleges and people who didn't go to college and people who didn't finish high school. People in nurseries. People who voted differently than you. That's what you're going to find at church. And in case what you for, don't forget what God's entire purpose is, you've got to see this. The Christian story is not this. It's not you praying a prayer and getting a pass on your bad stuff. It's not what Christianity is. It's a small part of it. But that's not what it is. The purpose is verse 6. This is the mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, the partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The whole point of God's redeeming work is to create a diverse body connected to one life-giving head, which is Jesus. The purpose of Christianity is the church. So what you're doing in your dorm room without any other Christians and not connecting other Christians is not Christianity. You might have the Bible as a part of it, but it's not what the Bible envisions is what Christianity is. And this, it also means this, gospel mission, bringing the good news, is also, most likely, it's not what you've either seen or tried, or maybe even been on the receiving, receiving end of, the, uh, the awkward, I want to talk to you about Jesus conversation with somebody you don't know because they knocked on your door, or maybe you knocked on their door and you threw that out there. And, and you go and you try to do this thing called evangelism, and you do it because you feel really guilty about the fact that you don't do it. And you push friends into odd conversational corners so you can convert someone. Maybe that's your vision of evangelism when you hear that word, when you think about God's mission. Like, that's weird. I don't know what that is. That's not how God envisions the gospel going forth in the world. Gospel mission is bringing people into community. Mission is much, much, much more like bringing someone into your community and they find that as they become a part of your group of friends and a part of your community, that there's something at the center of it that is lovely, that has drawn y'all together, and that's the person of Jesus. And so in the same act, they actually meet Jesus and are engrafted into his body. That's what mission is. That's what evangelism is. The church is radically different from any other organization because its very mission is to love the people outside of it, to include the people who are not a part of it. 
This is the way an old campus minister said it. The point of the church is actually to bring you into contact with people with whom you would otherwise never have anything in common. And you would never have any kind of connection. The point of the church is actually that we are blessed blessed by and also a blessing to people who are not like us. Old people and young people. Jewish people and Gentile people, educated and uneducated, people who like our music and hate our music, people who look like us and don't look like us. When Paul is saying the mystery of God is that the Jews and the Gentiles become members of one body, he's choosing the two most distinct opposing people groups to say the beauty of the church is actually the diversity of the church. And that's why God hands His mission to the church in verse 9 and not to you individually. As long as you conceive of your participation in the mission of God as an individual enterprise that you're trying to do, you're missing the very point that Paul's making. You're connecting people to you. And this is the thing about you. You're amazing, but you're one person who thinks one way with one set of strengths and one set of weaknesses and one set of biases. The church has one head, but it has manifold members. It has moms and it has dads and it has black people and white people and it has Asian people and Latino people and young people and old people and rich people and poor people. How much more are you teaching someone about the kingdom of God and the gospel when you bring them into that community as opposed to trying to argue them to Jesus with your winning personality? Brief application for the Christian. This means you have to reconsider your relationship to the church. If you're not a Christian or you're not sure where you fall in that spectrum, I invite you to Grace Presbyterian Church. And I'll say there are different types of people there. And you might come and you might think, these people are different. And if you come, consider this. Maybe that's a testimony to the beauty of the inclusive nature of Christ rather than a cause for the foolish complaint, they're not like me. They're not going to be like you. Paul says that's a strength. Paul is fired up because the the gospel gives hope to anyone. The gospel unites any kinds of people. And lastly, it can transform any kind of person. There's something cool about the way Paul reflects about himself in this passage. In verse 8, he talks about, I've been given this grace of sharing the gospel to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints. And actually, the, the language there says, I am less than the least. It's this kind of doubling of this word, least. But then in verse 12, he talks about this. He says, I'm part of these people in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Jesus. And you got to be, when I read it, I was immediately fascinated. In the same breath, he calls himself less than the least. And a few sentences later, talks about the boldness and the confidence that he has through faith in Jesus. He is humble and confident. And what humble and confident are when they're together, that's the description of an authentic person. Of an integrated person. It's a sinner who's profoundly loved. And if you're like me, that's not who you are. Because what a lot of my life is, is vacillating, not between humility and confidence, but between self-loathing and arrogance. One minute, I hate myself, I'm frustrated with myself, I hate the, the kind of person I've become or I'm becoming and I'm disgusted. And the next minute, I'm comparing myself to other people and I'm evaluating myself and I realize I'm way better than a lot of people. And I vacillate back and forth. And in a series of, of just brief moments, 
between self-loathing and judgmental arrogance. So what is humble confidence? Because it seems like they're related. And how is it possible? Self-loathing and arrogance always come when your identity and your self-worth are derived by your own work and your own production. The reason that we despair is because I have bad days and I have bad seasons. Morally, professionally, relationally, I perform poorly. And the reason I grow arrogant is because I also have days where I crush it, or at least I think I do. Right? But because I'm so inconsistent, because we're all so inconsistent, we end up never really knowing who we are. And we're bouncing between these poles, between self-loathing and arrogance. And Paul's giving us a picture of humble confidence. And humility comes when your standard of evaluation is no longer something that you derive from your peers. Am I like them? But rather you just see yourself the way God does. And he has an objective, unchanging standard of holiness. And when you just see yourself in that objective light, it's fixed. And you know who you are. And you know where you stand. And it's humbling. And you'll never think too much of yourself. But confidence also comes when you realize that you're loved and you're valued by grace and not by your performance. So that you know, I am in Christ. I have hope. I'm a son and daughter of the King because I'm forgiven in Jesus because I'm adopted according to His promise. Now you know where you are. And now you know where you stand. It has nothing to do with your fluctuating performance. That's where humble confidence is born. That's where we're allowed to be authentic, broken people who have hope instead of being pretending, afraid perfectionists. And it's the gospel that gives Paul this humble confidence and it gives you that humble confidence. The love of God, the grace of Jesus provides that humble confidence. This is why Paul's fired up. He's unthreatened by his past. He's unthreatened by being less than the least. He's unthreatened by his own imprisonment. And in verse 13, he says, I'm in jail, but I'm in jail. It's just, it's just not something I'm sweating. There's not a but what about. I'm here because I brought the gospel to you. It's totally worth it. So when he, when he says, I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. He's saying, oh yeah, this is what it cost me to bring you this good news. It was totally worth it. If nothing else, you have to be fascinated by this. And I hope in one sense, you actually feel a little bit envious of Paul. How can somebody have that singular passion that frees him from asking the but whatabouts? I hope it makes you a little bit envious so much so that it presses you to seek a little bit harder, maybe just to look into the mystery of the gospel. If you're not sure what it is, the good news that God is forgiving sinners, that He's restoring humanity Himself, that He's restoring people to one another by the only mechanism that can unite us, the only mechanism that can give beauty and elegance and redemption to the diversity of people that make up the church. That mechanism is grace. That's his tool. Paul has found it so lovely and he's found it so compelling. He's found it to speak so powerfully to the center of who he is that all of the but whatabouts that should have caused him to hesitate, they just faded. Because he has something to love. Something worthy of love. What is it? Verse 8. The unsearchable riches of Christ. That means we can't wrap our minds around it. 
It means if you spent hours and days and years and decades to contemplate the excellency and the profundity and the complexity of Christ, you wouldn't get there. So why then are we bored? If he's, it's this unsearchable beauty, why do we get bored and stop searching it? This is why I think, it's not because it's too simple. We normally think, well, I kind of, if you're a Christian or you've dabbled in this Christianity thing, you think, well, okay, I get it. I get the cross and I get Jesus. It's fairly simple. Now I'm bored, I'm moving on. That's not why we're bored is because it's too simple. We're actually bored because we're intimidated by its complexity. We're bored. I was an econ major in college. We're bored the same way I got bored of studying global finance. It became so complex. The more I understood it, the more complex it got. And the more complex it got, the more I got intimidated by studying it more. So I stopped studying it. Actually, the complexity was what pushed me away. I'm like, oh, this is unsearchable. I'm going to go back to something simple. I'm going to read grantland.com. That's my level, right? If you have found Christ mundane or boring, I suggest it's not because you understand it and because you've kind of something complex has become simple to you. I suggest it's actually fairly complex, and that's why you're intimidated by it. We're not bored because it's simple. I think we're bored because it's too complex. And there are some things in life, there are a lot of things, in which the overwhelming complexity don't push us away, but actually searching and discovering and walking through the overwhelming complexity is actually the joy of relationship. This is how marriage works. I hope this is the way your marriages work. I'll hopefully get a solid 60 to 80 years, ideally, who knows, trying to understand Elizabeth. I'm not going to master Elizabeth in 60 to 80 years. She, the uh, riches of Elizabeth are also unsearchable. Not as unsearchable as Christ, but they're up there, right? But loving her and enjoying that relationship is about enjoying discovering the mystery of her. And it's going to take all my life and I won't get to the end of it. And I hope I continue to be fascinated by that mystery. The best things in life are the mysteries we're continually fascinated by. And even though we never get to the end of it, we keep chasing the mystery and we keep searching the unsearchable. That's what Paul is saying we have in Christ. Unsearchable riches. Keep exploring. Keep enjoying. Chase after. He ran. This is Paul found it so lovely. He ran headlong after Christ and stopped worrying about the but whatabouts. So, Christian, if you're bored by Christ, it's not because you didn't. It's not because you got it and didn't find it fascinating. It's because you actually chipped a tip off the iceberg and you looked at that ice chip in your hand. And you're like, okay, I understand the gospel, and you missed the profundity and the power and the bigness of who God is. Turn around, go back to the iceberg. Your ice chip is not everything. And if you're in here, I know in this room there's a spectrum of belief. And skepticism. And if you're here and you're skeptical or you're halfway bought and you're not sure where you are, this is my challenge to you. Admit simply that you're tired. You're tired of the script. You're tired of... You, you can see through your script that the life you're putting together is not the life of somebody who's found something worthy of love. But it's the life of someone who's lonely for love, which is so many of us, that you're just piecing together little dreams and little distractions because that's what seems to be everybody else is doing. And so you're trying to convince your heart that you have a passion and that you have a love, but mostly we're just afraid. Are you tired of that script? Be willing to just admit you're tired. Consider the possibility of seeking the unsearchable riches of Christ and see if in the gospel and in the Father's love there's a story that makes sense of your reality and gives you hope. 
that you can find something worthy of your love. Let's pray.